I would like to begin today's message with the reading of Scripture. In fact, I, I want to begin with the very beginning of the Scripture. So please open, open your copy of the Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis, this historical book that is an account of the origins of the earth and humanity, as well, it's an origins account of the corruption of humanity and the Creator God and His gracious covenant to rescue a people for Himself and renew the earth. Through the calling of the historic Abram, who becomes Abraham, who becomes the, the father of the nation of Israel. And, 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 and through this covenant given to Abram would come further covenants. The covenant to the great King David of Israel and, and, and promises through the prophets of this messianic figure who would come. Of a messianic figure who would not only conquer the, 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 the corruption of humanity, but would also suffer in this corrupt creation and give himself as a sacrifice for us. That, that historical Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the nations, is the seed of Abram, the promised seed that, that was spoken of to Adam and to Eve. And in fact, I want you to open to the book of Genesis because I want to take you to the origins of humanity in Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 1 of, and chapter 2, we read a broad overview of the creation account where we meet the father and mother of humanity, respectively Adam and Eve. I want to I move quickly to the third chapter to set the stage for today's message, and we will look not at the origins of humanity, but at the origins of the corruption of humanity. And here we will meet a deceitful and devious creature described as the serpent who tempts humanity to rebel against the one who has given them life. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You surely won't die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was, was, was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the, 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 the woman who you gave to me, I mean, she, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what, what, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the, the, the serpent deceived me, and I, and I ate. Let's stop there. In today's message, I, I want to reflect on this historic beginning and its documentation of the fall of humanity, which has placed humanity to this day at odds with their creator and their fellow man, not to mention at odds with the creation itself. Look, look at the text. Look at, look at verse 17. The ground is cursed. Do you see that in verse 17? Look at verse 18. We read here, verse 18, of thorns and, and thistles. The creation has, has been brought to corruption. The overall scene shows what we are experiencing today. The creation is, is cursed with thorns and thistles, and as a result, creatures in the creation, especially humans in human relationships, are cursed, and they're, as a result, a mess, and the origins go back to this hiss of this figure, the serpent, who in the pro progressive revelation of, 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 this, of this book is shown to be a fallen angel, Satan, who schemes and whose successful schemes have brought a great deal of brokenness and bloodshed into the earth. Indeed, wherever he goes, the serpent, he leaves behind darkness, dysfunction, destruction, and death. Let me pause here and move by way of introduction to set the sermonic stage for today's message. The title of my sermon is, Where Was God on Tuesday? This past Tuesday, we experienced 
the very descriptive terms that I just rattled off, darkness, dysfunction, destruction, and death. On Tuesday, there was a horrible act of violence that took the lives of 21 innocent people. 19 of them were little children. This kind of violence is not isolated in our country. Indeed, it fills the earth. In fact, we are not even the country with the most violent crime in the earth. Murder rates per 100K from 2018 pre-COVID showed that countries like El Salvador with 52 per 100K are at the top along with Jamaica with 43 per 100K and Honduras with 38 per 100K. I could keep going, there's not time. We eventually hit our country. The FBI data shows in 2019 we had less than five homicides per 100K. In terms of, that, that's homicides, in terms of mass shootings around the world, the stats are really hard to calculate given that different uh, uh, places use different calculations and definitions for various variables that are involved in what constitutes a mass shooting. But that said, one source reports, and I quote, in a widely publicized study originally released in 2015, the Crime Prevention Research Center, the CPRC, compared the annual number of mass shootings per uh, mass shooting deaths per million people in the United States, compared that to Canada and several European countries from 2009 to 2015. The result, Norway actually led the world with 1.88 deaths per million, followed by Serbia, France, Macedonia. Where did the United States rank in this? In this study, it was 11th on the scale. In addition to this, uh, this uh, CPRC study, there was a 2018 study that ranked the United States at number 64 in terms of mass shooting rates per capita. Now the point of this observation is to show that our world has a problem with violence. We have, the, we have what's going on in Ukraine right now which, which serves to point and places all around the world where there is oppression, where there's homicide, where there's murder, where there's bloodshed, and all of this serves to make the point today that as we gather to process our own national and cultural sin of violence in the United States, namely that we know based on this book that there is a transnational and transcultural problem of violence in the earth which is rooted in a deeper and more ancient matter than what we see in our modern times. And what is that matter? We just finished reading about it. It's the rebellion of humanity at the very beginning of creation. Humanity has rebelled against the Creator. And that rebellion has ushered into the, into the very heart of humanity, violence and sin. The first children to the father and mother that we just read about, the first children would wrestle with strife, and one of them would murder the other. You see, rebellion against the one who designed the creation of family, harmony, love, peace, life, has ushered in disharmony, lovelessness, violence, and death. Along with these consequences in our depraved hearts, a great cloud of confusion has taken over fallen human minds, which is rather evident when mortals try to make sense out of things while ignoring the instruction manual of creation that was given to us by the Creator in this holy book. In Genesis, we see the origins of darkness and depravity. We see paradise lost. Look, look, look at the text. Look at verses 23 and 24. You see, humanity is driven from the peaceful paradise where God's presence was experienced and where innocence was known, now clothed literally in death. Look at verse 21. They're clothed literally in death. They are then driven to the land of death in the place of confusion, and ever since, humans have been faulting everything and anything besides the reality of paradise lost at the hands of humanity. Look at the text we just finished reading. See the blame shifting? The humans are hiding from the Creator, which should tell us something about who is to blame. Why are you hiding? What do you have to hide? What does man do? Man blames God. And then what does man do? Man blames his wife. And then what does she do when confronted? She blames the serpent. You see, it's everyone else's fault besides their own. And this trend continues today in the face of sin. Our default in depravity is to search in the wrong places to find fault. It's the education system. It's the education system. That's what we need. That's what we need. We need better education. It's the politicians. Oh, those politicians, they did this. It's the parents. It's the president. It's mental health. It's the police. It's, it's, it's. And to be sure, oh, the devil works in all of those details. Parents, politicians, presidents, mental health, police, all, all the devil works in all the details. 
But we are fools if we think that we can account for the phenomenon at hand without the revelation of this book that was given to us by the Creator to explain the situation. And in the case of Tuesday, we, we see the reason. And as I watch the news, I don't, I don't expect secular news to, 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 to be able to unpack these things, which is why you come to church on Lord's Day, and hopefully the preaching of God's Word takes precedence over interpretations in the news. But the explanation for it is found here. Humanity is fallen. Paradise is lost. Instead of following after God, they feasted on forbidden fruit. They chose an idol over the Creator. And as a result, what does the text describe? Them becoming like their idol. You see, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the choosing of what was right in their own eyes, the object lesson of the tree is just that. Will you... Will you choose to trust God and His will and His way, or will you do what is right in your own eyes? And they chose what was right in their own eyes based on the distortion of the devil who, like them, had his own paradise lost, but not in the earth, in the heavens. We will see momentarily when we get into our next section of Scripture that he was cast out, he was exiled from the heavens, and once fallen, he wanted to take down as many as he could with himself. Understand that in, in Scripture, though in our modern naturalistic times, we, we tend to think of the universe as just matter and, and sort of these cosmological constants and laws that just keep everything floating around, but reality is there is more than matter going on in the creation. There is an immaterial realm, and there is a material realm, and these two realms or two spheres interlock with one another. Angels and men and God animals and, and kingdoms in the heavens, all of it are interlocked in these dimensions. As the serpent, as the devil is cast out, he is interlocked in these dimensions. And so he goes into the earth seeking to, 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 to be successful with his shenanigans to draw more with him in this fall. And so in the realm of man, he leads a realm of men along with his realm of angels that we collectively refer to as demons, into the kingdom of darkness. Other angels were deceived by his shenanigans, and so they too fell from the heavens into the earth as exiles. And there in the earth, they were among God's own children, humanity, given dominion over the earth and, and made in his own image. And as image bearers, it's no wonder that the devil would attack them when, when you don't like someone which you ought not to do as Christians, but when you don't like someone, you see the image of them and it makes you go, ugh, ugh, you know, you, I don't know, maybe you got an X or something and you see a picture, ugh, you know, and you, you just unfollow so you don't have to see it because when you see it, it, ugh, I don't like, I don't like seeing the image of that person. It triggers something in you. And so too with the devil, as he is cast into the earth and surrounded by image bearers of God, it's no wonder that he would go after them. They were granted dominion over the earth, so it's no wonder that he would challenge that dominion and seek to take reign over the earth. Like a serpent in the desert, the devil camouflaged his attack and struck. He fooled them. And again, we as moderns, because of the materialism and naturalism or whatever, we might read this, the text and we're like, this just sounds crazy. You have this, like, talking snake. Why would anyone, like, be like, oh, you're a talking snake. You know, now, keep in mind, it's a, it's a new creation, so nothing's normal. Like, everything's, everything's new. So you're like, whoa, 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 there's a snake that's talking. Whoa, you know, I haven't seen that before, but you haven't seen anything before. You just came into existence. So you're, you're sort of learning what's normal at that point. But also keep in mind the overlap of the heavens and the earth. These realms, these spheres, are overlapping with one another. And at that point before the fall, it was much more obvious. God is walking in the garden for Pete's sake. You have cherubim, we read in the text, who are stationed around the borders of this paradise. Adam and Eve are in a creation where there's angels and, and where there's God. This is normal. And I, I point this out to say, and I'm going to dig into this more next week, uh, inside of the scripture, there are these angels known as the seraphim. You could read about them in the book of Isaiah. Seraphim, em is plural, so seraph, plural, seraphs. Uh, is, it, it is a word in the Hebrew that literally means uh, uh, fiery ones and or uh, serpents. 
And these beings, these angelic beings in the book of Isaiah, are described as these beastly creatures that resemble serpents. In fact, angels inside of the scriptures, if you've studied angelology inside of the scriptures, they often appear with animal-like features. And, and, and at other times, they appear with men-like features when you study angels inside of the Bible. And so this creature, this serpent that we encounter, this, this isn't anything that was like shocking to them because they live in a world where they're walking with God and angels. And you have a seraphim, you have an angel, there's other angels that appear this way, so to see one talking to you wouldn't be that big of a deal. And he comes, though, and he begins to twist the word of God, which should have been a big deal. And you see in that dialogue that they were aware that what he was saying was not the word of the Lord. He fooled them to have the forbidden fruit at the feet of an idol, the idol, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where you get to choose what is right and what is wrong. Rather than feasting at the, at the table of the tree of life, they... they grub at this idol. And the rebellion didn't begin, of course, with the, the grub in their mouth. Oh no, it began in their hearts as they began to crave after doing what they wanted to do. And in their mind, justifying what they wanted to do and choosing to believe the lie from a stranger, this shadowy serpent, rather than the truth of their creator who lovingly dwells in eternal light. Humanity was made in his image. But choosing the fruit of the idol, we see how humanity images idolatry. In fact, in the text, that's literally what they do. They are imaging idolatry. And so we begin with the very beginning, and we see God's creation brought into corruption and humanity imaging idolatry rather than their creator. What does the text say that they do? Look at it. What do they do? They take leaves from the tree and they cover themselves with it, which shows you who or what they worship. You see, they are imaging the idol that they chose to partake in. Follow me. In the Bible, there is a pattern or a principle of creatures becoming like the things that they worship. We read inside of the Bible, let me put this in front of you, Psalm 115, verse 8, that those who make idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. We see this when you study idolatry inside of the Bible, that those who bow at the feet of idols start looking like them. The, the, the sin has clouded their minds. They have become like the thing that they idolized. They are literally taking leaves and covering themselves. They look like a tree, don't they? Which shows you who or what they have worshipped because they are becoming like the thing that they worship at the feet of, this tree wherein they are empowered to choose what they want. You see, this is a pattern. We were made to image the Creator, but our father and our mother chose an idol, and like the biological genes that we inherit from our parents, it is passed down to us. And this is bad news. Uh, like male pattern baldness. I remind my biological sons, you just enjoy it while you got it, because uh, you, might, you might have had the gene, it's a, and it's a nasty one that gets passed on. Well, we have a spiritual gene that is, that is far worse, and it affects us all, and all of us have it. The good news, the good news is that God is not caught off guard by any of this and that God has enacted a plan. In fact, in the book of Genesis, in front of you, you see that he has a plan to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. He, he, he speaks of, of this one who is going to come in verse 15 of chapter 3 who's going to crush the kingdom of darkness and will come through the seed of the woman. God has a, a plan to bring about one who is going to step into the creation and is going to restore things. He's going to restore things. He's, go, he's going to unpack our idolatry. He's going to stand in the place of it. He's, he, he's going to hang in a tree, in fact, in our place where our father and our mother worshipped at a tree. The God that, 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 that we see revealed and the text is a forgiving God in the face of a fallen humanity who doesn't seek forgiveness. We don't seek forgiveness. We fight. That's exactly what we see our mother and our father doing. In our depravity, we don't reconcile with God. We recoil. We don't bless him. We blame him. And we blame others. Snakes and trees and spouses and more. And to this day, from Paradise Lost to 2022, 
We are metaphorically covered in leaves, hiding and running from our God. And in the bushes of our idols, we sit trying to make sense out of our conditioning by not listening to the word of God, but to the words of men. And you could see it all week long if you were paying attention, watching the news, and listening to Christless commentaries in them. They sound just like our father and mother in Genesis 3, blaming others. It's, the, it's this person's fault. That's why that happened. It's this person's fault. That's why that happened. And they're dividing and they're hiding. Apart from the fall and depravity, one would think that a tragedy like what we saw this week would actually bring people together. But in this case, immediately after Tuesday's shootings, we saw the politicians and the powder and the powers, the media and the messages pointing the finger at each other for who is to blame for what happened on Tuesday. And on this note moments ago, I quoted stats about global violence in the world to make the point that, hey, what's going on in our nation, it's not just us, it's around the world because we are all children of the two we meet in Genesis. The nations are the offspring of these two in Genesis. Now, meanwhile, I have seen in the news other statisticians using different methods and variables to place the United States at the top of the list and then to blame whatever hobby horse that they ride for the reason why the United States is at the top of the list. I have no interest in defending who's at the top of the list or who's not. I could care less. But it does remind me of the 1954 book written by Daryl Huff that is entitled, How to Lie with Statistics. Now that said, watching the world argue about who's on top and who's worse and whose fault and the numbers and the pointing of fingers, casting aspersions and dividing people to fit agendas and feed power, this is what we should expect from what we read in Genesis 3. And with this in mind, I want to help the church who so often throughout history and rather exaggeratedly in recent years, to be frank, get sucked into the polarities, the powers, and the partisan divides, fighting more passionately for donkeys and elephants than the cross. And so with that said, I want to equip us today to think about things that the scriptures emphasize. And I begin with the beginning to build a foundation for us so that as we're looking at this world, we, we're equipped as a church to be able to engage the world with a biblical worldview. And on this note, I'm going to be launching here, starting today, a short mini-series that, I'm entitled, uh, that I've entitled Making Sense of Violence. And we'll take a few weeks just to focus on the various angles of, of this thing. Uh, today will be the first of its installment, Where Was God on Tuesday? The answer, of course, to the question, Where Was God on Tuesday? is that God was there. God's at that school. God's there. Just as God was there in the beginning, on the heels of their sin, pursuing them. He comes to seek and save that which is lost. He's there. Paradise may be lost, but the omnipresent God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit has not left the creation nor abandoned humanity. And, 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 and the fact that he has revealed himself to us as the eternal triune God who is Father, Son, and Spirit tells us that he is with us. We're not making this stuff up that he's Father, Son, and Spirit. He's, he's revealed himself to us. He's a loving God who keeps revealing himself to us. And the fact that he gave us this origins account in this book tells us that, that he cares about the creation. And he, he wants the creation to know why things like Tuesday happen. So then by way of introduction, we start with the beginning. And now to go deeper into God's word, I want us to look at the forces that are at work behind Tuesday and the sovereign and loving God who was at work in creation on Tuesday and throughout all time. And so in the midst of this tragedy that we can wrap ourselves around something, namely the kingdom of darkness that is at work and this material realm and immaterial realm that overlap that in our world we far too often forget. So move from the book of Genesis to the prophet Ezekiel. Find your way to the 28th chapter in the book of Ezekiel. Here we find in Ezekiel 28 a very interesting prophecy that is directed at a wicked ruler, the king of Tyre. And though it is directed at this man, the prophecy is much deeper than the words to him. The prophecy describes the fall of Satan when he rebelled against God. This king was so wicked, the king of Tyre, that the prophet spoke to him as though he were Satan. Perhaps even the king is possessed by Satan. So you have this prophetic pun going on as he speaks to the king of Tyre and he also speaks to the devil in his chest. Describing him in, the, in these terms, the audience would have seen that the prophet was calling out the darkness of the day and what was going on. 
And there we are reminded of the immaterial realm and the material realm, that, that the kingdom of angels and the kingdom of men, they overlap. And if we want to make sense out of the news and we forget that overlapping, we're going to forget some things. Draw your eyes at the text, Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had a seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom. You were perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. That's the paradise we were reading of, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis, lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. And the day that you were created, see this being as part of the creation, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. Eden is the holy mountain of God in the Hebrew Bible. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. And therefore I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was filled up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to the ashes of the earth and the eyes of all who see you. This is the one who we meet in Genesis 3. The serpent. The fallen seraph. The fallen cherub who is in the creation attacking the image of the God who he has rebelled against. When we forget about the spheres, we can't understand the news. What we saw this week was satanic. A lot of times we think, oh, yeah, it's satanic. That's like that triangle thingy upside down, like 666, and like some, some punk rockers with like nail polish and, you know, I don't know, Beavis and Butthead or worship, you know, I don't know, Ozzy Osbourne, right? Like that's satanic. No, no, I'm talking about... Re- like real forces of darkness. And when we think of evil, we must think of him. Even people who don't believe in God use the picture of him. They use the picture of him. You see, he was the first of of created beings to go against God, and he has been leading a rebellion ever since. We see his handiwork all around us today. Tuesday has his marks all over it. And as we consider the tragedy around us today... Let us be reminded of the words on the lips of our Lord Jesus when he taught his disciples, as recorded in John 8, verse 44, that your father, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. Let us be reminded of the words of, of our Lord who taught us that he is a, that he is a, li- that he's a liar. He's the father of confusion. In the words of Elf, he sits on a bed of lies, or however that line goes. He's just, he's nasty. He is nasty. He is the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. This is what should immediately come to mind when we see something like Tuesday. This is the slithering serpent who is out to destroy the image of the God that he hates. This is the slithering serpent who is out to to, to spread confusion in the aftermath of it to soil further chaos. You know, last week, if you were here, I offered a sermon, What's Going On? Kind of playing on Marvin Gaye and his reflections in, in, in the post-war. And, and, and I offered that sermon because it was just a week before last Lord's Day. On May 15, 2022, here in California, Laguna Woods, where an evil man, believed to be a part of a Chinese communist group, entered a church of a small Taiwanese Christian congregation and shot six people. One of them died. The day before that, on May 14th in Buffalo, New York, a wicked man with ties to white supremacy, clad in body armor, opened fire at a top supermarket, killing 10 and wounding three others. 
The month before, on April the 12th in 2022, New York City subway, there was a deranged man with ties to black nationalism and racism who put on a gas mask and threw two smoke grenades and fired a handgun 33 times, killing 10 people and injuring 19 others. I thought I was going to go back to my other sermon series this week. What was I thinking? Boom, we get hit with another one. We need to stop. We got to learn how to we got to learn how to biblically reflect on this. We need to be equipped. So this week, May 24th, a wicked 18-year-old man, armed with a rifle and a gun, wearing body armor, opened fire at an elementary school in Texas. He murdered 19 students, two teachers in cold blood. These kids, these precious little children, were in the second and the third and the fourth grade. Among, among the dead were, were two sets of cousins. And this occurred after the twisted teen had shot his grandmother in the face, severely wounding her, seemingly with the intention of killing her, and then he went off to school where his demonic bloodthirst continued. And in the aftermath, watching the news, you just hear a great deal of confusion. You hear mixed reports from the authorities and the media about the details of the crime scene. You see these heartbreaking images of parents outside of the school begging for officers to go in and pleading for answers. How did this happen? What's going on? Last week, we scratched the surface in this sermon, what's going on. We reflected from the Bible at the heart of the problem with violence. We discovered that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, and we explored the doctrine of the depravity of man, and our only hope in the ultimate peace that is found in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who, who gives us new hearts, who settles humanity's ultimate violence with God and his neighbor. We were reminded of the gospel and our need for regeneration and the gracious election of God in our sermon last Lord's Day. We considered our calling to pray for the lost and to share the gospel which the Spirit uses in regenerating the elect of God unto life. And we saw clearly in Scripture, again, that the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. And, and, and this week, I want to build on that to show you the kingdom of darkness at work. And we'll build on that in forthcoming weeks. And hopefully the church will be equipped to thoughtfully and winsomely engage in this. Now listen, this is not to say that our response to tragedy should, should be merely praying and sharing the gospel or having a biblical worldview or whatever. Likewise, when we see injustice in the culture, like racism or abuses of power, we don't merely respond by, by prayer and uh, sharing our faith or whatever. No, we need to also be equipped to engage in God's common graces through proper channels to seek biblical reform and to cry out in prophetic witness against evil. That said, our calling of prayer and gospel proclamation is primary, and it is not in competition with those other common graces. We should be doing both. Saving grace and common grace should dance together. I say this because I've seen a number of folks uh, virtue signaling this week against, of all things, prayer and gospel proclamation. I've seen posts directed at churches, even from believers, saying things like, and I will paraphrase so as not to draw attention from this point by quoting anyone, but along these lines, stop with your prayers. Your prayers aren't doing nothing. They're useless. Stop praying, you Christians, and pass legislation. Now, of course, it goes on these posts to virtue signal to their preferred legislation to win the likes of their echo chambers. You stop your praying. We need to pass legislation on dot, 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 and then everyone in your echo chamber, yeah, 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 yeah. And you think, and you think that that's the way to go. Now to this, I beg that there's a different way to go. And I would submit to you on biblical grounds that prayer does change things. And that kind of rhetoric should never be on the lips of a believer. Again, our calling of prayer and gospel proclamation is not in competition. We should be doing both. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is damning. We are commanded to love God and to love our neighbor, and part of our loving of God is to joyfully obey his commands, and part of loving our neighbor is both to proclaim the gospel and to seek common graces that bless them and recognize their dignity as image bearers of God. Follow me, illustration. If there's an intersection by my house that regularly has fatal car accidents that hit school children, it is not enough for me to say, well, I pray every day that uh, it'll stop. And you know what? I share the gospel with other people car owners and drivers, hoping that the Lord will change their hearts and, and then they'll drive less recklessly. No, I pray, absolutely I pray. But I also want to seek God's common grace for the good of my neighbor by working for, I don't know, a stop sign, maybe a camera, right? We should be doing both. This is basic to law and gospel. The law commands us to do what is right. 
The law reveals to us that we don't do what is right. What was right for our father and mother was not to partake of the tree, but they did partake of the tree. And so the law condemns, and now the gospel comes to say, to this bad news, we have good news. And then we continue to work together uh, in common grace to address the ramifications of the bad news, and it's saving grace to ultimately liberate humanity from the fall. So we can work to get a street sign. That's not going liberal. That's not losing gospel centricity or mission. Likewise, we can fight against forces of racism or whatever cultural issue and not lose the gospel. Uh, further, we can work to pass legislation, I don't know, against killing babies in the womb. And we can also pray for God uh, to do great and mighty things to change the hearts of people who are propping up the evil abortion mill of the culture. Uh, you, you know in... Uh, uh, you know, Jane Roe of Roe vs. Wade actually became a believer, an outspoken spokeswoman uh, for the cause of life. We, so we pray for that salvation, and then we also work against evil in the culture. Now, all of this to say, in regards to mass shootings, the solutions are much more politicized than, say, a stop sign or stop killing babies. Those are pretty daggone clear. And hence, coming together on an issue like what we see happening this week and a lot in our culture and around the world becomes difficult. And the devil is in the details. The devil's in the details. And he's dividing folks. And so depending on your tribe and your media outlet, you have already been catechized with responses. And you have been taught to tune out others who disagree with you. So one side shouts for more restrictions and more gun-free zones, and the other side shouts for for, for less restrictions and less zones. One side wants bigger government. That'll, that'll solve it. And the other side wants less government. And I say to both sides, the devil's fingerprints are all over it, especially as these tribes get dragged into the church and believers start to divide over it and get distracted from the one policy solution that we are commanded to herald, Christ crucified for sinners. And that said, while people are dividing and the world is watching, specifically the world watching the church, our lost friends are watching us. Your, your lost friends are watching your social media, and they are listening to what you talk about, what you're happy about, what you're upset about. And behind all of our lost friends' passion for public policy, they are wondering more deeply about more important questions, like the one before us today, where was God on Tuesday? Where's God? And why, if there is a God, did he let this happen? I'd rather be, them be upset to my question of, of where is God and who is God than, than my, my policy philosophies of what I think would work better. George Barna, the public opinion pollster, conducted a nationwide survey to see uh, what people would ask God if they were able to ask him just one question and to get an answer. By far, the most common response in this survey was this question. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? You see, it's a question that people are asking. Are, are, are you ready to answer it, or are we distracted by the divides of the politics and the partisans? More personally, this could be a question uh, that even you are asking this morning. Maybe you came to church this morning, and, and you're dealing with this probing matter. I don't know about you, but as a parent, when I, when I look at the faces of these kids, and I see those parents outside in, in horror, and, and, and the question, I, I begin to essentially experience this. Where was God? What's going on? It's a very basic question. In fact, if you were here for church on time today, we had an extended reading in the Gospel of John in the 11th chapter where Lazarus died, and what did Mary want to know? She wasn't asking about health care reform. She was, she was asking, Jesus, why weren't you here? Where, where were you? Now listen, don't, don't, don't mishear me. Should we have dialogues about health care reform? Yeah, absolutely. Should we have conversations about guns? Yeah, absolutely. Should we talk about racial injustice? Yeah, sure. Should we talk about why it's easier to get fentanyl than baby formula? Yeah, we should. Should we talk about our nation's administrations and, and the shenanigans of the state? Absolutely, we should. But the Lord's Day is historically a day of worship and gospel proclamation and, 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 and pulling down the demonic divides of the culture in whatever age the church finds itself in whatever culture the church finds itself around the world, we pull down the demonic divides of these respective cultures and we pull them down to the foot of the cross. And we take them to the foot of the cross where the wrath of God that we deserve is satisfied in the innocent sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Our corporate worship, when we gather, is a place to pull the right and the left in community in both repentance and faith to Christ 
and to seek His Spirit to sanctify His church. And by His sanctifying work, then some of these heavy policy questions are a little easier to be had because unlike the world, we have the Spirit of God working among us, giving us love and charity and making us a family, and we actually act like it in the way that we talk to one another and have union with one another. Now, all of this is an application for us, for the church, in terms of how we as brothers and sisters navigate the divides. And it's important for the watching world in terms of our behavior, especially after we've seen in the last few years churches splitting over a piece of cloth, churches splitting over COVID views, relationships among Christians strained over the politics of it all. And so the call today to the church is to say, hey, let's not let this happen again. Let's seek love. Let's seek unity. And let's work together to proclaim our one policy solution in Christ. And let's work together to open the eyes of the world to see the serpent who deceived our parents and is still bamboozling the creation today. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that he is the prince of the air at work in the creation. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we, we, we read what? That he's the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Now, church, thankfully, we have the power of the gospel that opens the eyes of the unbelieving by God's grace. And we have been called to engage the forces of darkness and to tear them down with the truth of God's revelation in the word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, I'll put it in front of you. You see that very thing. We are not called to walk by the flesh, but by the spirit. In doing what? In taking down speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God in Christ and taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. Now, in the time remaining, that's what I want to do. I want us to put on our thinking caps and equip us for engaging those who say that God does not exist. I've given you a biblical framework. I've pastorally called you, hey, to be careful just in terms of the, of the church, how you interact with, 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 with folks and walk in the way of love. And now I want to equip you intellectually to do what we are commanded to do here, to tear down these lofty speculations. Our culture is filled with lofty, atheistic attacks against God in general and anti-Trinitarian attacks specifically against the God of the Bible. I think of the atheist uh, Ricky Gervais's new Netflix stand-ups, and uh, in, in them he takes, he takes pot shots. He takes pot shots as believers. He takes pot shots at Jesus himself. He has a joke, same thing, you know, about Jesus not being there. His most recent one, jokes against God. Now, of course, in the, in the media, all that you say when Ricky Gervais, if you just Google it, what you're going to see is the cancel culture is coming for him. They're upset because he's made some statements that are quite rational about sexual ethics and LGBTQIA plus type stuff. And the left is going nuts over him and trying to take away, you know, his, his rights of speech. So you get a big pass on attacking God and Jesus. But, you know, you, you make fun of the hegemonic powers and they're going to come for you. Suffice it to say, how do we engage Ricky? How do we engage those who are mocking us? Because we come today on the heels of gross darkness, and we, we came singing to him. We're bringing offerings to him. We're going to have communion. We're going to celebrate him. And, we're, and, and we're, we're professing, oh, he was there on Tuesday, and he's a God of love. So, so how do we respond then when the world asks us about, about the, the so-called problem of evil? I want to equip you. So put on your thinking caps. We need to understand that the problem of evil is both rational and it is emotional. The rational or intellectual problem wants an explanation for how belief in God can be held in the midst of clear existence of evil. The emotional problem may or may not be even based on the rational problem, and it, desires how, it has desires about how do we deal with a person's aversion for God that allows for evil to coexist with God. So let's look at this, and in forthcoming weeks I'm going to unpack more because my heart as a pastor in this church is to equip you for this kind of engagement. So we move from the problem of evil. Let's talk about the rational problem of the coexistence of God and evil. We'll pick up the emotional problem more next week. The rational problem was not newly discovered by the Barna Poll, the aforementioned Barna Poll. It's been around for centuries. The first person credited with putting the so-called problem of evil out there was the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, about 300 years before Christ. Uh, and, and he's put forward what is referred to as the Epicurean paradox. It really isn't a paradox, rather it's a logical argument, a reductio ad absurdum, I would say, but his three-point argument is, is there on your outline. If God exists, then there will be no evil in the world. There is evil in the world, therefore God does not exist. He is arguing that the existence of evil is incompatible with the existence of the gods who, who care about the world. 
Now, there are more sophisticated versions of this argument, but there's not time, and this argument is still being used in modern times, so I put it before you to equip you to respond. In modern times, uh, very much people have been influenced by David Hume. So you see the next point on your, uh, your outline, the logic of Hume. David Hume was the great 18th century Scottish philosopher who used this argument in the, the Dialogues of Natural Religion. It is written there on your outline for you to see the seven points, but rather than reading the seven points for sake of time, let's just read it in Hume's own words. Hume said, I'll put it before you, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Well, then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Do you follow it? If God exists, and if God is all-powerful, omnipotent, and if God is all-good, omnibenevolent, then why does he allow evil and suffering in the world? Now, there is nothing, follow me, logically inconsistent about belief in God and the existence of evil. It could turn out that God is just evil, and so he or she or it lets evil happen. The concept of God and the concept of evil, uh, philosophically, are, are not mutually exclusive. In fact, Epicurus drew the conclusion that the presence of evil only proved that the gods who do exist just don't care about the human affairs the way that humans do. And some Greeks in that context believed in gods who were bad and did shady stuff, if you've ever studied Greco-Roman mythology, and so they go, oh, whatever, the gods just aren't as omnibenevolent then. Uh, but this raises the question for us as believers who read our Bible, and we read he's omnibenevolent and omnipresent and omnipotent. Well, how do we reconcile? Does God care? Uh, Epicurus believed in, in these gods that were nasty. We certainly don't. Uh, Hume's version of, of the problem is a, a little bit different. He's specifically marshalling it against the God of the Bible, and so we need to respond. How do you respond to this problem of evil? Responses to the problem of evil are what are known as theosities. Okay? Theos is the word for God. Dikeo is a word for uh, uh, justifying. Dikaios. How do you justify the existence of God in the presence of evil? Gottfried Leibniz in the 17th century, the German philosopher and polymath, introduced this term, theosity. It's a good one for you to have down. What is, what is your theosity, dear brother, dear sister? When you, Your children, if you're a parent, your children are asking you this week. I'm watching the news, I'm glued to the tube, uh, watching this thing, and you know, what, what, my kids are going, Dad, why? Why did he do that? And you explain, and then what do they do? But why? <laughs> and you explain, well, why? Where was God? Okay, now there are many ways that this question has been answered. The possible questions or answers to the question on your outline you, you have are, are simple. You can deny the existence of evil. There are some worldviews that do this. They just do, deny evil altogether. Many Eastern religions, New Age religions do this. They say, well, evil is just all an illusion or whatever. I had a friend say that to me one time, and, I, and we were close enough friends that I could do this, so otherwise I don't re recommend this tactic or response, but you know, he said, oh, evil is just all illusory or whatever, and, and so I, I gave him a little slap in the face, and he goes, why did you do that? And I go, do what? <laughs> you know, he's like, you slapped me. I, I, why did you do that? And I was like, I didn't slap you. I thought it was all illusions, you know. So this, this one is just easily... This is, just, this is just easily exposed, unless you're on the peyote and you're deep into the cult. Uh, that's an easy one to expose. So, so we're, we can't even deal with that one. Secondly, maybe God's not all-powerful. That's a logical option. Uh, many believers in God have, have proposed this. Rabbi Harold Kushner, famously in his 1981 book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, his response to the problem of evil is just to say that God's not all-powerful. Kushner said that there's evil in the world because God can't eradicate it, and according to Kushner, God is good, uh, and he's kind-hearted, but he just doesn't have enough to quite stop it yet. And so over the course of time, he's sort of building up support, and eventually he's going to conquer it. So he's like, he's like Rocky in training. You know, he's just he's trying, to get it, he's trying to get it down, and eventually he's going to win the bad guy in the end, but he just he doesn't have enough strength at the time. Uh, another version of God not being all-powerful is to say that God doesn't know the future. And so there are some who propose that God isn't omniscient in terms of uh, exhaustive knowledge of all future free will contingents. So God just doesn't know everything that's going to happen. So when 9-11 happens or, or the shooting in Texas happens, you know, God's just kind of, oh, 
wait, what? You know, and he's, he's kind of figuring it out as he goes, in which case God is off, off the hook with his proposition. A, a, a third way is just to say that maybe God is not all loving or God is not all, all good. Now, again, for us as believers, we would argue against this view because the Bible says all the time that he's all loving. In fact, the Bible says not only that he's all loving, but that he is love and that he is good. God is good, amen. What do we say, right? He's good all the time, right? That's one of our, that's one of our things. So that's not an option available to us, to those who hold the scripture in authority. So the fourth thing that we would want to argue that I would want to equip you in is that God is all-powerful and all-loving. We have just misunderstood the nature of evil. So how do we make sense of it all? Well, we do it with a theology from Scripture. And what do we do when we want to go to the Scripture to understand it? Well, we begin the way this sermon began. We begin with the beginning. In fact, go back to the book of Genesis. If you still have Ezekiel open, just flop open to the beginning of the book of Genesis. Look back at the text. We started in chapter 3 and went straight for the jugular of the problem. But look... Look at the creation of humanity, this first point. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, we have to move fast, look at it. God created humanity. In verse 28, he, he said he blessed them. Throughout chapter 1, you see the repeated refrain that it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. They're made in God's image, that's good. He's blessing them, he's saying everything is good. In Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, that's good. That God's given life, everything's good, so we see everything's good. And then we move from creation to choices. And here we see that he placed humanity in paradise, and here we see that he placed a choice before humanity. Draw your eyes at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God said to man, put him in the garden of Eden, cultivate it to keep it. The Lord God, verse 16, commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you surely will die. Emphasis in verse 16 on the word freely. They have free wills. Unlike you and I, they are not born sinners. They are fully, fully, fully free. And then in verse 18 through 24, we read how God makes the woman. He joins them together in marriage. They are fully free to love each other. In verse 25, we read this important detail about them having no shame. They have innocence before God. They were without shame because they were without sin, and this brings us full circle to where the sermon began with the collapse of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. As we read Genesis 3, we are reminded of what was said in Genesis 2.25. They were without shame. They were not hiding. And then in Genesis 3, they become like the idol that they worship. They're covering themselves. They appear as though trees. And they are told, not bless you, but to the dust you will return sobering word. The day that you eat of it, you will die. Now understand, we use the word day colloquially. Uh, you know, Ahmad, back in the day when I was a kid, you know, back in the day, right, in the day, in the era that you eat of this, you will die. And immediately from that point, their bodies entered into a state of disease and decay, and their society and their relationship went into dysfunction. At odds with one another, at odds with God. Vertical and horizontal homardiology. The creation becomes a mess. And immediately after this, in Genesis 3, we read the account of Cain and Abel, a tragic murder story. And the story there digresses into further depravity. We read the prophet Moses describing the blood from the ground crying out to God. And you keep following the story, and there's polygamy, lying, idolatry, dysfunctional families, slavery, oppression, deceit, thievery, and on and on and on. What is the moral of the beginning on your outline? The moral of the story is that disobedience to God creates despair and brokenness. It is not good to disobey God. That's what we see in Genesis. That's what you see in your heart. You've experienced it. It is not good to disobey God. You can't say amen, you can say ouch. You've, you've, you've done things. And you've felt things. And you feel guilt, and you feel shame, and you try to cover yourself, and you try to blame others. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? You convinced yourself it was worth it. No doubt the devil was in the details too. Can't blame him though. Was it worth it? Who is to blame for the mess of sin when God is disobeyed? Who was at fault in the Garden of Eden when man disobeyed? Man was. Who was at fault when Cain killed Abel? Cain was. 
Who's at fault this past Tuesday? The shooter. It's that simple. And why would people blame God? Because, the, because they're looking in their fallen state to blame something other than humanity. Because in our sin, we are proud and we want an excuse. And excuses literally pave the way to hell. Where was God? Where was God? Do you understand that the problem of evil can't even exist without God? Because you can't even get started with, with there being an objective evil to, to hold against God if there is no God. If there is no God, there is no objective evil. It's all subjective. Some cultures uh, eat chicken. Some cultures eat vegetables. Some cultures eat humans. Some cultures love their neighbors. Some cultures kill their neighbors. Who are you to judge? It's all relative if there is no moral lawgiver. There, there is no problem of evil. So, so if you're using the problem of evil to attack a God that you, can't, that you don't believe in, you can't even get started. You can't get started with that. It simply does not work. The philosophical implications at hand, though, of why God doesn't stop evil is because to do so it would require him to overhaul the free will of those that he freely gave the will to, our mother and our father, as we saw in Genesis. God didn't make robots, put little microchips in them, and say, hey, tell me you love me. I love you. Tell me you, you'll obey me. I obey you. They get too close to the tree, and he grabs the joystick, and goes, eh, get away. You know, he didn't make robots. He didn't make robots. He made free will creatures. Right? Because without choice, there is no expression of love. So, so, so hypothetically, uh, for, for the, young men, the young single men in the room, uh, say you lived on a planet and there were no other men, and you were just on a planet full of women. You're like, that sounds great, Pastor Matt. Uh, okay, this is just hypothetical, okay? Uh, uh, you're on a planet and it's just all women and it's only you, and you're like, I'd like to start a family, right? And so you pick one, and, you know, I don't know, a few years into the relationship, you start being haunted with, does she really love me? Why? Because she didn't have a choice. All she had on the planet was you, <laughs> right? We, we understand this intuitively that without choice, how do I express love? How, how do I show my love without that choice? And so that, that tree, every time they don't partake in it, they're saying, thy will be done and not mine. C.S. Lewis explained it this way, why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, automatons or robots, of creatures that work like machines would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily, united to him and to each other, and for that they must be free. Of course God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way, but apparently he thought it, it was worth it. And the atheist understands this. The atheist wants their freedom. It is inherent to humanity to want freedom. The person who insists that there is no God because he doesn't stop evil, just ask them if they would like to see laws against whatever they're into. You know, just, just attack the moral issue that they're really passionate about. For example, a liberal secular humanist who insists that there is no God because he doesn't stop evil, just ask them if they would like to see laws prohibiting, I don't know, uh, abortion. See how they feel about that? They would say no. Uh, you know, if not, you could pick another topic. Would you like to see laws against homosexual marriage or fornication? Or uh, would you like to see laws that you must attend church on Sunday? Of course, they're going to say no. Why? Because, as it is said so often with the abortion issues and other issues, I need a right to choose. Right? Isn't that the way the debate goes? In fact, the position that is in favor of the legalized execution of babies in the womb is so-called the, the, the pro-choice view. Because choice is valued more than life in our culture. We intuitively, fallen creatures intuitively, get this issue of choice. So brother or sister, as a believer, if you're engaging someone who wants to attack the existence of God, I say use that intuition in them that is given to them by God in their conscience to talk to them about, about freedom and about love. Moral freedom requires that we can freely choose good or evil. Therefore, the possibility of choosing evil is, in fact, a good thing, because moral freedom is a good thing. 
Don't believe me? Remember what the text said. God made everything and it was good, and he gave them this freedom we read in Genesis. Now, as a side note, I want to be clear in saying uh, 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 that while we have freedom post the fall, our freedom is absolutely corrupted, as you saw in the sermon last week. And because of that, salvation is an act wherein God actually overrides our free wills. Because our, our wills are bound to our desires which are fallen, and so we freely choose every time against him. And it takes the work of the Spirit to regenerate our hearts, that we would be born again, that we would come to him. Now, by way of conclusion, let me land the plane. You've been patient with me. In sin, people are choosing to serve evil over good. I think of Joshua who said, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The choice to humanity between good and evil is a real one. And humanity is faced with the reality that we have chosen the bad over the good, and as a result, we stand against God. And so we need to humble ourselves and come to God, a God whose heart breaks over what happened on Tuesday, a God, a God whose heart breaks over the decisions that you've made in your life, a, a, a God who sent his son. We saw those parents outside the school, the pictures of grieving parents who lost their children. We worship a father who gave his son to become a man and die for us. We, we saw in the beginning of our public reading of Scripture in John 11, Jesus weeping in the sight of death. Oh, do away with any, any idolatrous concept that you have that God is not a compassionate God, not a caring God, not a weeping God, not a mourning God, not an intimate God who's not involved in all these details. His heart breaks over the fall as he watches this creation that he made to know his love and as he receives unrequited love at the offer of his son for us. Should we have discussions about policy and guns and this and that? Absolutely, we should have discussions about those things. Going back to what I said earlier, those discussions are not mutually exclusive to prayer. We are called to pray. We are reminded in Scripture that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness. We are called to, what does it say? Resist the evil, to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, to take up the shield to extinguish the, the flaming arrows of the evil one, to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and with prayer and petition at all times. To those online saying, stop your pray, you don't know the word of God. We should pray at all times and be alert. The devil is on the prowl, brothers and sisters. He's dividing the church. He's weakening the church. He has many pastors preaching anything and everything besides Christ crucified. And there are rooms and buildings that call themselves churches that come to hear politics over proclamation. May it never be said in our church. May we come to the table of communion now as we picture the one broken for us, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. May we come in song. May the world think that we're fools for Christ's sake, that in response to evil, we come and we worship. We come and we give. We come and we, we take little cups and little pieces of bread. And we're foolish enough, enough to think that these little cups and this little piece of bread is going to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. Our, our, our mother and father sat at, at, at that, that dumb tree and they ate that fruit. Our Christ, our Savior, he hung on another tree on Calvary. And he gave us a, a new meal to partake in. That reminds us of the forbidden fruit that they ate that corrupted us all. A new table has been prepared that brings life and liberation. Dear friend, if you've heard this message today and you haven't responded, I beg with you, I plead with you to come to him today and be forgiven of your sins. Dear brother and sister in Christ, I beg of you to come in repentance and faith that the word of God today would not fall on deaf ear, but indeed would bring life into us. And as we come to the communion table, that the, the work in these pictures of the gospel would just give us joy and unify us as we leave this place with the hope, with the hope that in the face of this dark world, the king is coming. And the darkness will end.
and the dead in Christ will be raised. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll no less days than sing God's praise. He's coming again. Let's prepare our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word we have the explanation for Tuesday and more. More personally, Lord, we confess it is easy for us to watch the news and to see images of this shooter and to be filled with rage. And Lord God, to think that your rage burned against our sin. As your son taught us and reminded us, yes, there are men who murder, but you, with anger in your hearts, are guilty of the same. And there is none who are exempt who are hearing this word today who haven't been angry, who haven't been judgmental, who haven't been divisive and hurtful and hateful. So, Lord, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you have chosen to give us what we don't deserve, and we celebrate that as we come to the table. You, O Son, were broken for us. Your blood was shed for us. And your blood in your body will overthrow the kingdom of darkness in due time. In due time. The problem of evil, in reality, isn't a problem. It's a picture of your patience. You are patient with this dark world. And so, Lord, we give thanks to you for your patience. We come now to celebrate you. Move in our time of song and communion, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.